So I want to start by reading our passage in Philippians for this week. We're going through the book of Philippians. We're in chapter 1, verse 27. I'm going to read a bit longer chunk this morning. And I just want to challenge you to kind of open your heart and your mind up to what's being said. I'm going to read from the NASB. It should be on the screen. But if you uh, have a Bible, you can follow along with that as well. So this is verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men." Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So then, my beloved... Just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and I pray that we wouldn't tune out this morning. I pray that you would speak to us with what you desire us to hear. God, I pray that you would show us that you desire our lives to look a certain way, but that conduct comes from a changed mind. We have to think a certain way, but to think a certain way, we need a changed heart. We have to live. We have to love differently. We have to experience that love for ourselves. And so, God, would you move in us from our hearts to our minds to our hands and feet and change us more and more, into your image, your glorious picture of who you've designed us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, as I said, we're moving through the book of Philippians, and you might have noticed that today's passage was a bit longer than usual. We've been biting off kind of smaller chunks at a time so far, and there is a lot of content here, so don't feel bad if you kind of got lost at first. We'll kind of go back through it. Uh, But there's more here than I can adequately cover on one Sunday, so we're going to break this section up into two Sundays. But 
I'm going to look at that first section mostly and sort of the overall thrust today. And then next week we'll look at chapter 2. But if you notice, the whole section seems to be one continuous idea. It opens with a, a phrase, I want you to conduct yourselves this way so that whether I am able to come and see you or whether I remain absent, as in imprisoned or possibly death, that I will hear that you're conducting yourself this way. And then it ends again with, therefore, continue to obey, not only, again, as in my presence, but also much more in my absence. Paul seems to be concerned that the prospect of his imprisonment and his possible death might have a negative impact on the Christians who are in this church in Philippi. So up to this point, he's been reassuring them. He's been trying to reassure them, hey, this has actually been working out for good. The gospel is advancing in this corner of Roman society, in the prison guard. Uh, it's also working out for my continual salvation. We talked about a, a way of talking about salvation that is not just the, the instant or the moment of being saved, but the transformation of a person more and more in keeping with who God has designed us to be. He says, this is working out for my transformation, my salvation. And also he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I have a lot of reason for joy even in these circumstances because my joy is not rooted in my circumstances. My joy is rooted in my purpose. It's rooted in my mission. And so because my mission is advancing and even if I die, I get to experience the prize of that mission, Christ himself, and it's a win-win situation for me and I have reason for a lot of joy. But now the focus of Paul's concern shifts away from himself to talking about us, you, the church here in, in Philippi, his readers. Therefore, this is my challenge for you. Here is what I want to, to hear about or see for myself, that you are living your lives also striving for the faith of the gospel. Don't be frightened by your opponents because opposition and persecution may be a sign of destruction for them, but it's actually a sign of your salvation as well. Just as Paul has said, I'm rejoicing knowing that this will work out for my salvation. And now he says, what, hap what is happening to you is what you saw happening to me and is now happening to me. And then he closes with overall, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling. If I were to read into Paul's thoughts, which I am, I think his primary concern right now is the maturity of this church. The stuff we're talking about is kind of advanced Christianity. It's how do you think? How do you live? How do you act? I don't think he really doubts their maturity that much. He's pretty encouraged by it. But there's some fighting going on with some people in the church, and he's going to address that. But Paul is like a father. And this church are like his spiritual children, his beloved children. And he's wondering, can they make it on their own? Will they continue to stand on their own two feet should the worst thing happen to me? If I'm not here to answer their questions when they write or send messengers back and forth and give them advice, will they be able to handle it? That's what he wants to know. Are they ready? Can they fly the nest? Can they stand firm and strive together if I'm no longer with them? There is a process of discipleship. Becoming a Christian is not about praying a prayer, being baptized, just so you can go to heaven someday. There's a growth process. There's a life change that takes, course, uh, takes place over the course of our lives. 
We're, we're learning to see our world differently. We're learning to conduct ourselves differently. We're learning to love better. And so that's what we're going to focus on today is because that's kind of what Paul is focusing on is a picture of this advanced discipleship, Christianity. Our conduct has changed because our minds have been changed because our hearts have been changed. So we're going to talk about our conduct. We're going to talk about our minds. We're going to talk about our hearts. Our conduct, first of all. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You'll notice that the cover on your bulletin has this title written a little bit differently. That's because there's a Greek word here that is rendered, live as a citizen. So it would be read, so conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And most of the commentators point out that this is pretty intentional, probably, for a couple reasons. One being that the word citizen in the Greek is never used in any of Paul's writings except for Philippians, and it's used twice in Philippians. And the second time is in chapter 3 when he says, to, uh, he says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior who is Christ the Lord. I think there's an important reason why Paul uses the terminology of citizenship for these particular people, and I think it's relevant to us too, to use the language of citizenship. Because two, the value of one's citizenship would be extremely relevant to these people because it's pretty relevant to us. What does it mean today to be an American citizen? What values does that bring to mind? What constitution, what bill of rights, what cultural mindsets or attitudes that define American people because of our citizenship. Conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Roman world at this time was not a very nice place to live if you were not a Roman citizen. And most people were not Roman citizens in the Roman Empire. They were subjects of the Roman Empire. Non-native cities and residents, they were taxed heavily. Their children were usually forced to serve in the Roman military. So if you, like in Judea, especially in the, the area where most of the gospel stories take place, if you were trying to make a living through your fields or your animals, your livestock, there would be a huge tax to the Roman Empire that made it hard to make ends meet. And then not only that, but your children who would be helping on the farm or whatever you did to make an income would be taken away from you when they were of age in order to go serve in the Roman military. So it was hard. Not only that, but a third of the population were slaves. But if you were a Roman citizen, no taxes, you had the right to vote, you couldn't be imprisoned or beaten or tortured without a fair hearing. Philippi was known for its patriotism as a Roman colony who prized its Roman citizenship. When the emperor Augustus Caesar, Octavian, defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra at the Battle of Actium, and the Great War was over in the mid-40s BC, he retired his Roman soldiers to Philippi. It became a retirement community for Roman soldiers. So they were fiercely patriotic and they fiercely prized their Roman citizenship. So Paul says, conduct yourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
And I want to make a note also that, for one, I don't think he's saying that right conduct leads to salvation at all. He's not saying that you need to become worthy of citizenship in God's kingdom, but rather having received a new identity as a citizen of God's kingdom, live a life that reflects the citizenship of that kingdom. Live a life that displays the worth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is the gospel worth to you? Especially if you're a Christian. What's the gospel worth to you? This proclamation that brings the dead to life. This announcement that God did not sit by and by from his heavenly throne but emptied himself of all glory and became a servant for you, gave his life for you. Do you have a testimony? Do you have a life change story? Is that something that you treasure? Because most of the time when we have something we treasure, we put those treasures on display. We proclaim them. We announce them. So Paul is saying, I want you to live a life that displays the worth of the gospel. I want you to live a life that is worthy of the kingdom of God, that shows the value of a citizenship of the kingdom of God and not just the kingdom of Rome or the United States. We're dual citizens. We can't be saved by our conduct. And actually the book already alluded to that earlier. So he can't be contradicting himself. So what does the conduct of a citizen of the kingdom of God actually look like? What are we supposed to live like? Paul stresses unity. It looks like unity. But unity for the sake of unity is stupid. Okay? It's never going to work for one thing. You have to unite behind something to get plugged into something and come together behind that cause. In particular, Paul says to be united in identity and to be united in purpose. He's once again tapping into the kind of language that this Roman colony would relate to. He uses Roman military imagery. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Stand firm in one spirit. And I believe that word spirit is referring to the Holy Spirit that God's people have in common. We're given the Holy Spirit. But it's not just that. It goes deeper because the word spirit is literally translated as breath or wind. And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament when it says God's spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters before he began to create. And then it says God breathed the breath of life into Adam's nostrils and he became a living being by his pneuma, his ruach, his spirit. And so the spirit refers to that animating life source that gives us life, the source of a new life. And in the same way, in John 20, it says that Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive now the Holy Spirit. And in that upper room in Acts chapter 2, there's a sound of a rushing pneuma, a rushing wind, a rushing spirit. And something like tongues of fire come down on all the disciples and they're filled with that Holy Spirit. So this isn't just about saying we are people who stand as one united in the fact that we have this 
Holy Spirit, but we have the animating breath of a new life that defines a new community, a new identity. Stand firm as a new humanity. Stand firm in a new identity rooted in the work God has done and animated by the Spirit's life, giving you a new life. We are the people who've been brought from death to life. We are the people who stand together in the new identity of a new life defined by the Holy Spirit. Unity and identity. Also, he says, strive together with one mind for the faith of the gospel. Last week, Paul revealed that source of joy that it's not rooted or subject to our outside circumstances, but joy has to be rooted in the purpose of our life, the mission of your life. And he says, to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. What does it look like to conduct ourselves as citizens worthy of the gospel? It means uniting together behind the cause of the gospel of Christ. Uniting in our identity in Christ and the Holy Spirit and uniting in our mission in Christ, our purpose in Christ, the cause of Christ. That's what our conduct is meant to look like as we strive for faith in the gospel. And this is how we conduct ourselves differently, displaying our true citizenship in the world. But we all know that while conduct involves a certain amount of personal willpower and discipline, You can't force behavior, or it doesn't work very well. It has to come from a change of heart that yields a change of mind. And so Paul says, not only that, I want you to think differently. I want your mind to be different. He says multiple times throughout this whole passage, have this mind about you. Conduct comes not just from willpower, but from the way we see the world, the way we think. It has to change. We have to learn how to see our world differently. So in 28, he says, In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Your Bible might have this translated a little differently. Often it says that your lack of alarm or fear by your opposition is a sign of their own destruction for them, but of salvation for you. Your suffering is a sign of the destruction of your opponents. Now, that would make sense, and it certainly has merit as a true statement. There are plenty of instances in which Christians facing death or persecution without fear brings about an awareness to their persecutors that these people seem to be living for something that I don't have. And it becomes a witness of their life and of my destruction if I'm a persecutor. But in context, I don't think that's really what Paul is trying to say. I think this translation works a little better. He's talking about having a mind about us to see things differently as he himself does. He said, I know that this suffering will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation. And in the same way, he wants us to see that what looks like our destruction to our persecutors is actually our salvation. That we see this adversity, we see suffering, we see struggle, we see humiliation, we see persecution, not as a sign that God has left us or abandoned us or has it out for us, but that this is actually what he's doing in the process of saving us, changing us, rescuing us. How do you get that? How does that work? Like I said, that's advanced stuff. We don't naturally think that way. Our minds don't normally work that way. So how do you get there? 
When you think of your own citizenship, what comes to mind? You think about a constitution, a bill of rights, the right to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, the freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the right to bear arms, the right, you know, we've got a list of rights. Maybe you think of a lifestyle and values, for better or worse. You know, we're, we're, we are a nation who has always prized integrity and hard work. We go to school, we work, we earn, we support a family, we retire, and so on. We're also a nation of consumption. You know, we're a nation uh, that's kind of got a greed problem here and there. So there's, what are the value, what, what do you think of as an American citizen? What does it be, mean to be a citizen of our country? And if you recall, Philippi, they take pride in their Roman citizenship. And there would have been those people over there who aren't as fortunate as us, the slaves, or the outsiders down in Judea, or the the surrounding countries who are subject to Rome. Aren't we lucky to live where we live and enjoy a quality of life as Roman citizens? But what we hear is that the church in Philippi is beginning to experience some pressure. They're beginning to experience some of the same opposition that Paul himself experienced while he was in Philippi, which included some mistreatment that wasn't in keeping with his Roman citizenship, if you read Acts chapter 16. You see, to stand for the gospel of Christ means that you stand against the gospel of Caesar. Now, it doesn't mean that you're going to be a militant against your native government. In fact, it's quite the opposite. But it means that you have to proclaim Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. And that begins to stir up opposition. As these people are living out their faith, some of their rights and privileges as Roman citizenships are probably being threatened or trampled upon or infringed upon and it's becoming uncomfortable. And Paul's main concern is, will they show maturity here? Do they have a mind that sees things differently? Will they see the removal of their rights as a sign of their destruction or a sign of their salvation? What about you? Would you see things differently? In the media, Facebook, the news, we, saw, we see a lot of people get hung up on their rights. You know, you're, you're violating the Constitution. You're violating my rights. Don't trample on my rights. When that happens to you, If you lose your rights, what's happening? Is God abandoning us? Is this a sign of our destruction? Or is this, in fact, a sign of your salvation? How does it work? How do you get there? What does that mean? What would that look like? He says, for to you it has been granted, and that word granted is the same word as grace. It has been graced to you. This is a gift of grace from God to you For Christ's sake, not only that you believe in him, it's a gift of God that you believe in him and be saved, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. How is suffering a gift? How can you see suffering as a gift from God? It's not easy for our minds to wrap around. To answer that, I think we need to have a more holistic view of what salvation is. So I got a little story. A few, years, a few years ago, my wife and I bought a blender. She asked if I thought it would be okay to buy this blender. And when I saw the price tag, I said, 
that much money for a blender. But it's one of those high-powered, commercial-grade, you know, Vitamix. Maybe you have a Ninja, one of those. Um, it's a serious blender. But what I didn't realize is that this blender would forever change the identity of our family. That is to say, we became a green smoothie family. <laughs> yes. At least two times a week, our morning breakfast consists of a piece of toast and a nice tall glass of green ooze. Now, it's not nearly as bad as you think, because usually the kale or the spinach that you're putting in there to make it green is heavily overpowered by the bananas and the fruits and the things that you put in there that actually taste good. So it tastes like a fruit smoothie, and I'm not complaining. It's pretty good. I think it was Shannon who said, if you're green inside, you're clean inside. Okay? <laughs> so I can get on board with this. It works. We have a garden behind our house, and um, we decided to start growing our own greens for our green smoothie, so we don't have to keep buying them. So we have this nice big kale patch and this nice big um, chard patch and stuff like that, and we'd use this for our smoothies. And the thing about kale and chard, actually, is they're really hardy. They last through the winter. And so we get to springtime, and we've got this nice big kale crop, and it's putting out all these leaves, and every spring... We usually rip up our whole garden and churn up all the soil and add new stuff to it and make it look all nice and beautiful and plant a brand new garden. Uh, but, you know, I'm looking at this and I'm going, man, it'd be a shame to put all that kale to waste. But the thing about kale is that as it gets older and bigger, it gets like stockier and chunkier and, and the, the leaves get kind of more and more bitter. So your smoothies start to taste a little more like paint thinner. And so she convinced me to rip out all the kale. And I'm just like watching, like, this is like good produce here going to waste. But then, yes, of course, we toiled up, we, we tilled up all the soil and we made this brand new garden. It looks beautiful and there's new stuff starting to grow. And that's all well and good. The reason I share that is because I think our lives are all a bit like that garden patch. We all want to present something beautiful. And we all have our ideas of what our gardens should look like. But sometimes our lives are full of weeds that need to be pulled. Sometimes we hang on to crusty old plants that need to be uprooted so that something new can grow. Becoming a Christian is like turning your life over to a new master gardener. Trusting his vision and his expertise and his tactics. This was meant to be beautiful. This was meant to be glorious. I can make it work. Do you trust me with that? Sometimes our lives, well, excuse me, I already read that part. He knows how to make it beautiful, how to clean it up and produce really good fruit. But that means we have to let him remove our weeds. That means we have to turn over our old kale plants so that he can till up our soil and make it fertile again. We read a little bit further on down our passage. Verse 3, I'll read, says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with all humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Those words, empty conceit, I think in the Greek give away kind of what he has in mind here. Empty, the, the word is kinodoxian. Empty being kino. Doxy, doxa being glory, 
empty glories. Don't live your life out of selfish motives or in the pursuit of empty glory. Because that's what we do. From the beginning, God is all about bringing his glory down and filling the earth with his glory. The creation story starts as a picture of God's glory coming down from heaven to earth. The earth was formless, dark, and empty. God begins to create forms, starting with the celestial realm, then moving down to the skies and the seas, then to the land. And then in parallel with that, he begins to fill those forms with life, answering the void, the emptiness, with life and glory starting with the lights in the celestial realms, then moving to the birds in the skies and the fish in the seas, then coming down to land and filling it with things that move, creatures. And then lastly, it says he makes human beings in the image of God. And Psalm 8 says that we are crowned with glory from on high. We are reflections of God's glory. That's what we're created to be. So that the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God when we garden properly, right? But we traded the glory of God for the glory of created things, according to Romans 1, Paul says. And so we were given over to a debased mind in pursuit of those empty glories. Back in the the garden in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent said, God knows that when you eat this, you will be like God. So unlike Jesus, we who were not equal with God considered equality with God a thing to be grasped and tried to fill ourselves with empty glories. And so we think God's going to be really impressed with our kale plants. And we think, you know, these weeds are okay. It kind of hurts when you rip them up. Please don't touch that. We Hang on to empty glory. Living for empty things, empty strivings. But salvation is not just the gift of being able to believe in him. It's the gift of being able to suffer for his sake. To have those glories that we hold so tightly trampled on a little bit. To have our pride brought low. To have our rights infringed upon. So that we'll see that the things we cling to are nothing compared to the glory of Christ. So that the gardener will create in us a mind to see that his plan for this garden is a lot better than the chunky kale we're hanging on to. That's how you can have joy. That's how you can see suffering as a gift. It is God transforming this garden into glory. When we realize that we've been living for empty glories instead. So to be a citizen of heaven means to be emptied of empty glory and to exalt the glory of the gospel of Christ who emptied himself of his own glory in order to become a servant for us. We're called to have the same mind. But what about the heart? How does he get into your heart? Chapter 2 starts with saying, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, If there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love. We can have a heart that is transformed 
when we know the heart of God in Christ. And once again, you have to dig into the words here a little bit to get the raw depth of what is being said here. This little section is easily overlooked, but when you start looking up the words, it opens up powerfully. Paul is calling us to live as citizens in God's kingdom, displaying in our lives the worth of the gospel of Christ. That means our conduct will be different, united together and standing firm in a new identity, and united as we strive together for the same purpose and cause. Our conduct changes when our minds have been changed, but our minds change when our hearts have been changed, or in this case, our bowels. The word here, if any affection and compassion, the word affection there is the word splanchna. Say that with me because it's fun. Splanchna. It means intestines, bowels, and is often used as a way to speak of deep, groaning, visceral, physically felt passion or compassion for someone or something. Deep emotional pain or joy or anxiety or something that is felt in your guts. It's very moving. (laughs) Sorry. We could keep going. We can go downhill from here, but I won't. (laughs) I think Mark Lowry had a song about this or something. Something. He starts by saying, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, that word is paraclesis. It's much more than just encouragement. It has the idea, the Holy Spirit is called a paraclete, a helper. It's someone from a position of strength coming down to someone in a position of weakness as a helper. If there is any, I mean, think about the, the picture of an athlete who's running, they've been training their whole life for a race, and something knocks them down or they trip and they go down and there's an injury and they can't finish the race. But then, like, their teammates come in. You've all seen this, right? In some, some TV show or movie, their, te- their teammates come in, or maybe even more powerfully, like the opposite team members come up, and they lift up this athlete and carry them across the finish line. That's the picture of, of paraclesis that I want you to have. If there's any paraclesis in Christ, that while I was still weak in my sin, clinging to this filthy garden, at that time, Christ died for me, came down, emptied himself. If there's any consolation of agape, the selfless giving love of God, when God, for God so agape the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Any paraclesis in Christ, any agape consolation, if there's any koinonia of the Spirit, the fellowship of a new family, a new community, defined by a new identity, rooted in the presence and relationship of the Holy Spirit that we share together, if any of these things ring a bell or have worth or value to you, if any splanchna and compassion, you know what he's saying here? How do you have your heart changed for you? Because Jesus went through gut-wrenching, love-based, passion, suffering, and joy for you. When you see him in the garden sweating like great drops of blood, 
committing himself to a cause that would cost him so much. When you realize that Paul is saying, God didn't just go through the motions. His heart was rendered open for you. That's how our hearts are changed. Incidentally, my friend Seth pointed out there's some interesting theological stuff happening here. There's paraclesis, agape, and koinonia. Encouragement in Christ, consolation of love, fellowship of the Spirit are like kind of the the three big doctrinal theological points of the gospel of Christ. It's incarnation, atoning death and resurrection, and the ascension and release of the Holy Spirit of Jesus, right? It's kind of fascinating how he uses his words because that's what's described in the Christ hymn that we'll read here in a minute. So we're called to be changed in our hearts by this incarnation, this paraclesis, this advocacy of one who left his throne and gave up his rights and his citizenship in heaven to become a slave and a servant for us and to help us in our weakness. We're called to have that same mindset for each other, for one another. We're called to have a heart that's changed by the, changed by the self-giving agape love of a father who gave himself on a cross for us. We're called to have a heart change by the new family and the fellowship of the Spirit that we experience in a whole new life and new identity that is free from condemnation and guilt because of what Jesus has paid for for you. And we're called to have this heart because it wasn't just a matter of doing for Jesus. It was a matter of his own heart. Splanchna. Excuse me. That's what led Jesus to lay aside his heavenly glory and become a servant. So what is the gospel worth to you? Does your life display its worth? So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that all on your own you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. Unity in an identity. Unity in a mission. I want to close, I guess first of all, just with my own bit of story here. Um, You know, you might think, uh, the guy up there speaking in front of you has probably got it all together. Boy, listen to how his faith sounds. But like anyone else, I go through periods of struggle uh, and doubt. And, uh, and, you know, wondering, like, is this all just a big gimmick? And I can go through convincing my mind. I can say, um, yeah, but there's the resurrection evidence. There's all the different ways the Bible just makes sense of our world. There's all these, all these things. But for some reason, that doesn't always change the feeling or, or the, the struggle. 
Just this week I was going through this as I was listening to a podcast that was really challenging me in a lot of ways because it was a, a, a deep, cordial conversation between an atheist and a Christian. And I could really identify with both sides and some of the struggles with belief that are there. And I'm troubled by this, but at the same time, I was feeling this degree of relief and comfort in that. And until today, I didn't really put a finger on why that was until I realized that our struggles themselves, when we feel humiliated for what we believe from outsiders who are saying, you're just following a, a story. Like, you know, you're, you're, can you really believe this stuff? The humiliation that you feel at that possibility why was I comforted by that in some way? Because it became apparent to me that this is a sign not only of the possible destruction of my faith, but actually of my salvation. It's how God roots out the weeds, is by bringing us through trials and struggles. And I also realized that at the core, the one thing that was never really talked about is the heart of the issue. What is your treasure? Do you live a life, does conduct come from what you treasure? It always comes from what you treasure, but what do you treasure? And what I had to keep coming back to is my own personal experience. That I found myself trying to be a really good Christian years ago, uh, when I was still in college, but failing miserably, feeling like a hypocrite, trying to, to get this kale plant in my life and say, see, God, there's this. This is pretty good, isn't it? Doesn't this make me a worthy citizen? Just kind of ignore all the weeds, okay? But eventually the weeds got the best of me, and I was totally humbled by the fact that I couldn't manage the weeds on my own. And I felt worthless, that God couldn't possibly love me. So there I was on my face. And through my own thoughts and prayers and through a song that came on on my iTunes, on my computer, I felt like I had this sudden picture of what the gospel really means. What it really means. That there was Jesus saying, no, no. In your weakness, I died for you. That's what Ephesians says. Not when you were strong enough, but in your weakness. Says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. You think you can take those holes away? You think you can undo the cross? It is my passionate, heartfelt declaration of rescue for you, and it's done. It's paid for. It's done. So give me your struggles and trust me. Give me your kale. Give me your weeds. I can handle your weeds. I can work it out. I can take care of this if you'll surrender this garden to me. That experience was like a new birth, even though I would have considered myself a Christian. That experience was life-giving. It brought a dead heart to life. That experience changed something in me that became a treasure for me, that released a huge burden in my life. And I hope that you have had an experience like that because that's what causes a heart change that results in a mind change that results in a conduct change that is in keeping 
with the gospel of the kingdom of God so that we would live as citizens of his kingdom and not just this country. So let's, uh, let's instead of closing in prayer, I'll close in prayer, but I want to read the passage that we always read together in this series, together. I want to read it together. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is worth your memorization. So why don't we stand up together and read this? Starting verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ. Don't, don't whisper it. Come on, ready? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Lord, you have this glory in mind and the way we glorify you is when we let go of empty glories considering others even more valuable than ourselves lord living up lifting up their interests as a paraclete because of the paraclete the helper that lifted us up in our time of weakness and gave this love to us let us love others with that same love God, I just pray right now for anyone who doesn't have the incredible surpassing worth of the story of the gospel as a true story in their own lives. Lord, of your powerful love and forgiveness offered freely as an act of rescue. God, I pray they'd receive that today, that that would be their story today and that that heart would yield a change of mind. And that for those of us here who've been Christians, Lord, but who would look at humili humiliation, or persecution, or the trampling of our rights as destruction, change our minds to see it as your salvation, rooting out the weeds, tilling up the soil, discarding the old plants, and making a way for your vision of a glorious, fruit-bearing garden that you've created us to be. We, with fear and trembling, give you permission to do what you will with these gardens. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.